Lord, I am not a person who naturally has the ability to connect with people and communicate truth from your word in a way that's effective and powerful and life-changing. So, Lord, I ask that you would, you would speak here by your Holy Spirit, speaking through Scripture and bearing witness by your Spirit to experiences that line up with Scripture. Help me, Lord, that I might be effective, that I may say nothing that is not true to Scripture, and that I may not say anything that is unnecessarily troubling. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let me pick up my story a little bit this way and uh, tell you that when I finished seminary, I basically viewed this book as a catalog in a museum of extinct species, kind of like a natural history museum where you have a lot of of animals that are stuffed or imitated or recreated that don't walk or fly or swim on the earth today. That's how I viewed the Bible. I viewed the Bible as true, but I viewed the Bible essentially as applying in some basic things to the world back then. Some things happened that challenged my assumption. Not in my first congregation, which was in the late 60s in South Carolina, Not in my second congregation, which was in Kansas, but after I moved here in 1975 to take the pastorate of what was then called Jackson Street Presbyterian. And um, what happened was that I encountered some things that I didn't believe happened today. One of those things happened in the fall of 19. 77. I remember it well, October 31st, 1977. There was an older woman who had come to see me with some problems, and people have seen me for problems for a long time because I don't charge anything and I don't accept anything, so when you're free, you get a lot of business. And um, this woman began to talk to me. She had ideated suicide and actually had uh, in the past been hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital, actually at Central, here years ago, for attempting suicide. And she had come to be a member of my congregation and she came to me for advice. So as I listened to her and and as she began to to share with me uh, her suicidal thoughts, and I I, I reflected on the, the seriousness of it, I began to ask her some questions. I said, do you remember a time in your life when you didn't have thoughts like this. Oh, yes, she said. I I never thought this way through most of my life. I said, well, do you remember the time this began? She said, yes, I remember very well. She said, my brother committed suicide. And at his funeral, just before the funeral, when we had the private last viewing of his body with the family, I went up to his body, I put my hand on his chest, and I said, oh, I miss my brother so much if there were just something I could take home with me from him. Now, you know, maybe that doesn't say anything to you, and it might not have said anything to me, except it was how she said it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Oh, if I could just take something home from him. Wow. That's when she began to think about suicide and actually ideate suicide and become obsessed with it and try it on more than one occasion. As I began to talk to her and pray with her, some things began to happen that sounded like things you read about in the Gospels. And uh, I realized I'm out of my league. I don't know anything about this. And so uh, I remembered a friend of mine, another Baptist, who had been in college with me and then actually was in seminary with me. And he had happened to travel to Louisiana from up north to see somebody who lived out in the country near Alexandria. 
about six months before. And when he told me about this man, I laughed about it. He told me, well, this guy believes that there are demons today that affect people and that Christians can cast demons out. And I laughed about that. I thought that was so totally ridiculous. Now, six months later, I'm troubled because it wasn't just the words. I just want to take something home with me from my brother and the suicidal thoughts beginning. But it was other things in her demeanor, how she said what she said, and for want of a better word, the cast of her eyes. So when she left, I decided to find that preacher and phone him up. And he said to me several things, and one was, he said, does she have a, a, a grown family member? I said, yes, she does. He said, I want you to bring that person with her, and I, and I want you to bring an officer in your church, a deacon or an elder. So we made an appointment. We went out, uh, way out in the country, to see this man. And uh, I saw things that night and heard things that night that I did not believe happened in the 20th century. This, that was, as I say, in uh, 1977. After that, I had some other experiences because that opened my eyes. And what it did was to begin a process in, in me of how I read the Bible. No longer did I read the Bible as true, God's inerrant and infallible word. I still read it that way. But no longer did I read the Bible as true for then and not as a field guide for what you see in the world today. I began to read it differently. I began to read the Bible as a field guide to what you see in the world today. Kind of like you're going to take a walk on the Azalea Trail and you carry with you three or four books in your, in your backpack. And one of them is a field guide for, uh, for, for uh, flowers. And another is a field guide for snakes. And so when you see red and yellow kill a fellow, when you see a particular snake and you, you look at it and you say, oh, it's not red and yellow, that's a corn snake. You feel okay to pick it up, maybe, not me, but you might. Anyhow, so you have a field guide to look at stuff around you and identify and say, yeah, this is the real McCoy, and so on. So I began to read the Bible that way beginning in the fall of 1977. And it had profound uh, impact on my whole life. I, mean, I knew that God was real. While I'd entertained being an atheist and actually thought I was an atheist while I was in high school part of the time, always scared to death I was uh, wrong, I settled that when I became a believer on September 4th, 1964. But the reality, things like this, I don't know if you can identify with this or not, things like beginning to pray, and you're really praying earnestly about a situation, and then thoughts begin to bombard you like this. Yeah. God doesn't listen to your prayers. Why do you think the Bible is true? Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There's nobody up there hearing you. This is just silly. Well, I began to realize that those thoughts were not necessarily coming from me. What I used to do when I had thoughts like that, because I, my undergraduate degree is in philosophy, was to begin to reason with myself. I mean, there you are, praying earnestly about a problem, and you begin to take yourself on. Well, here are the proofs, you know, here's, here are the reasons why I believe that God is God and He exists. Here are the reasons why I believe Jesus really rose from the dead. Here's why I believe the Bible is true and so on. Well, and then guess what? Prayer time is over. Apologetics 101, you've defended the faith to yourself and uh, you've lost time to pray. After what I saw that night, I began to look at the world in a different way. I began to look at the Bible in a different way. 
And I began to look at myself in a different way. Before I go into more events, I want to share some thoughts with you from Scripture. And so if you happen to have a Bible or you're taking notes, and by the way, if you're interested in some of this, uh, I have 31 pages from my doctoral dissertation, uh, which was basically dealing with Islam, but a, a portion of my dissertation looks at uh, Islam from the perspective of the supernatural world. And so uh, dealing with things like Satan, demons, principalities, and powers. If you're interested in that, if you sign up, we can make that available for you. I don't want to give it out electronically for several reasons that will not be mentioned. But I'd like you to turn with me, if you have a Bible, to the book of James for a moment. James chapter 3. James chapter 3 says this as, uh, as we move through it. He says, in verse 14, James 3.14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You know, the church, for almost 2,000 years, has thought in terms of our renouncing three things when we become a follower of Christ. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Literally, James says to us in uh, James chapter 3, uh, there, these words. I can turn in my Bible quickly. He says, This wisdom, he said, is not coming down from above, but is earthy, soulish, and demonic. Earthly, soulish, and demonic. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Earthly, earthy, soulish, and demonic. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The human soul can be influenced profoundly by evil. And when it is, strange as it may seem, it's a synonym for flesh, the flesh. Flesh, as sometimes it's used in the New Testament, is not always about the meat on your bones, but it has to do with the inner person as non-regenerate uh, or unsaved, not born again. The unsaved mind, the unsaved soul. And he says there's a kind of wisdom that is of this world, that is of the human soul in an evil, fleshly kind of way, and is demonic. Now I want you to reflect with me for a moment. Demonic. What does that mean? The first thing you've got to see here in this, in this verse, uh, verse 15 of James 3 is, that we will on a regular basis, encounter thinking that is worldly, carnal of the unsaved human soul, and demonic. What is a demon? Demon is an interesting Greek word. The word demon has to do with a lesser god than the Olympian gods. You have the Olympian gods, you know, like on old Olympus towering tops, uh, Finn and Greek, anyhow. So you have the Olympian gods. Those were the great gods. Then you have lesser deities, little gods. I'll use the word godling. How about that? Godlings. And so you had lesser deities. It's interesting that when the Jewish rabbis who translated the Hebrew scriptures, which Jews call the Tanakh and you and I call the Old Testament, into Greek, a hundred or two hundred years before the time of Christ, they chose that particular word from classical Greek, godling, godling, little god, lesser god, minor deity, demon, to translate various Hebrew words for evil supernatural beings that were not Satan himself. 
You have Satan himself. Satan is actually a transliteration of the Hebrew word for the supreme evil being. It comes from the Hebrew verb satan, which means to oppose or to be an adversary or to be an accuser. A very fitting title for this creature. We're not quite sure what his name is. It's probably not Lucifer, since Lucifer is a Latin word anyhow. And um, it's uh, found only uh, there in, uh, in St. Jerome's translation of Isaiah uh, in Latin hundreds of years after the time of Christ. It's probably not Lucifer. Satan is the Hebrew word for the supreme evil being. An adversary, an opponent, an anointed cherub who was there by the throne of God, but who began to be full of pride, according to Isaiah uh, 14 and Ezekiel 28. And in his arrogance and pride, he began to say, how come he's sitting there and I'm over here? And so he rebels and he leads with him a vast host of the heavenly host who come to this world and do evil. And those lesser gods, those demons, those spirits, those fallen angels are what the rabbis were referring to when they translated various Hebrew words into Greek and used that particular uh, word from classical Greek, a demon. A demon. A fallen spirit. A fallen angel. An evil spirit. And he says in James 3.15 that there is a kind of wisdom, it's clever, it sounds right, it seems true, it's very compelling, but it is worldly, it's soulish in the sense of a fallen human mind, and it's demonic. Here's another one for you. Let's look, if we would, at the book of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And I want us to see something here. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Ephesians 6.10. I happen to be using the uh, English Standard Version. If uh, you prefer a different version, you've got one. I'm just as happy using that. But uh, English Standard Version, version Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil. Now, the King James Version uses the word devil to translate the uh, Greek word for demon. But I think it's better to think of the devil as just one devil, the devil, Satan, the book of Revelation chapter 12 uh, puts several things right together. The, the, the fiery dragon, the ancient snake, referring to Genesis 3, the devil, Satan. Those are all put together and as describing the same being. And he says there, he says, uh, the schemes of the devil. So we're dealing with one devil, one Satan, one ancient snake, one fiery dragon, one supreme power who is attacking the, the people of God. But he has under him ranks and hierarchies of supernatural beings, fallen spirits. And then he goes on and he says in verse 12, for we, notice that he switches from the second person personal pronoun to the first person, personal pronoun. He says, you, in verse 11, that you may be able to withstand. And then he says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul is including himself. Paul is writing these words as a mature believer, and he's saying, we wrestle. Ever see a wrestling match? It's fake. Here's one wrestling match that's not fake. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. What's he saying? He's saying when you have a conflict with your husband, when you have a conflict with your wife, 
When you have a conflict with a professor, when you have a conflict with a student, when you have a conflict with a peer, and when you get into an argument with a Muslim, you're not wrestling with flesh and blood. You're really wrestling with something else. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now think about it with me. Paul is not an unbeliever. Paul is not a backslidden Christian. Paul is not a carnal Christian. Paul is not a babe in Christ. Paul is a mature, godly Christian man who has obeyed the call of Christ and has taken the gospel into the Gentile world. And he writes as a mature believer when he writes the letter to the Ephesian Christians. And he says, we wrestle. So here's the deal. My friends and brothers and sisters, you're in a wrestling match and you're going to get whooped every time unless you realize what you're really dealing with. Because you'll think that your husband's just a jerk. He is, but all men are, and I can say that as a man. But it's more than that. There is an amplification of what you see with your eyes and hear with your ears that is supernatural because you have a cruel adversary who aims at nothing less than destroying your marriage so that he can destroy your children, so he can destroy your witness and your ministry, so he can wreck your finances and wreck your health. And until you come to grips with the fact that when you get down on your knees to pray, when you decide that you need to share your faith in Christ with a relative, and you begin to have certain things pushing against you, and you think this is just natural, you're going to get whooped every time. Every time. So St. Paul tells us that we wrestle, if we want to put it positively, against supernatural evil forces. Some are called principalities because, and if you're interested in this, I say again, 31 pages uh, from uh, a section in my dissertation. Uh, you can look at that more fully. The Bible indicates that colleges have spirits over them. Local churches have spirits over them. Communities have spirits over them. States have spirits over them. Nations have spirits over them. Denominations have spirits over them, especially the denominations that don't think they're denominations. What am I saying? I'm not saying that every church is evil or every denomination is evil or every, every community is evil. I'm saying that we encounter thinking that is very difficult to overcome according to the particular principality that is over that. And again, if you want to read that, 31 pages, free of charge, available, just sign up. Within the sphere of ruling powers, there are lesser spirits who are assigned to people like you and me. And they help us be blind. They help us take offense when no offense was intended. They help bring division and strife. I want to share an experience with you around the time of the older woman in 1977. That same fall, a young woman came to see me. It was very awkward to share, but I'm going to share it because I think it's profitable to share. I had just begun to realize that I was dealing with supernatural forces in the world, and I needed to take those supernatural forces real. This was the second session in which I listened to this young lady who was not part of my church. And when she came in, I noticed that she was not wearing a bra. And men notice that, by the way. 
It's just, it's a guy thing. And um, I'm a guy. And even though I'm nearer 80 than I am 50, you know, I'm still a guy. Okay. So guys notice that. She came in wearing a tight sweater. And again, it's a guy thing. Guys notice tight sweaters. And there were certain physiological things happening to her that guys also notice. But all of a sudden, as I'm listening to this woman, who was every teenage boy's uh, goal to meet, a nymphomaniac, um, I began to have thoughts pop into my head. I began to hear old Saxon onomatopoeic physiological monosyllabic words, one in particular that begins with F. I actually heard a voice. That voice said to me, I didn't hear my, my ears, the tympanic membranes weren't vibrating, but I heard a voice in my head that said to me very powerfully, very compellingly, this is in my office in a church, go ahead, you can, old Saxon onomatopoetic monosyllabic physiological term for physical relations, you can do that to her on the floor. I hear this. I hear this voice. I'm not kidding you. And then suddenly, even though I love my wife, I fell in love with my wife in uh, 1967 in a college uh, Christian fellowship group in a church on a Sunday night in 1967. Even though I love my wife, and at that point had three children, and I love being a pastor, and uh, it generally is and should be, at least temporarily should be, a, uh, a job uh, change situation. If you do that, I think pastors should always step down for a season if they fall into that. That's my belief. All of a sudden, I found myself unable to think about anything else. I began to find myself salivating. I don't mean drooling like the wolf out there looking at a lamb, but I'm telling you I'm beginning to have physiological changes in my body, my mouth watering, and thinking only about what this voice was saying to me. And I tried to pray, and I couldn't pray. I'm telling you the truth. I really believe that had I not had the experience with the older lady in my church and an elder in my church and the older lady's grown son going out into the woods of Grant Parish and seeing what I saw and hearing what I heard, I wouldn't be standing before you now. I really believe that. But because I witnessed that and heard that, when another thought came into my mind, I immediately responded. And that thought was this, get out of here now. Wait a minute, I'm the preacher, I'm the pastor of the church, this is my office, this is my study, this is where I pray, this is where I study sermons, prepare sermons. Me, retreat. And the other thought came back again, go ahead, go ahead, you can do this thing on the floor. There was a physiological thing, that's the world. There was carnal reasoning, you know, I'm a guy. But there was something supernatural here saying this to me in such a compelling way that it's blocking out my ability to think about anything else, including the wife whom I love, the children I love, the job that I felt called to do. And thank God, the other thought, get out of here now. And I did. I said to the woman, who never knew what was going on inside of me to the best of my knowledge, I said to the woman, excuse me, I'll be back in a couple of minutes. I walked out of my office. My secretary was in the next room. I went into our auditorium, our sanctuary, and I did something for the very first time I had never, I had ever done. I addressed the thought. And I addressed the thought in the name of Jesus. And I said, get 
out of my mind in the name, in the authority of Jesus Christ. I appeal to the blood of Jesus. Do you know what happened? It's like I'd been in a sauna or a steam room, a Turkish bath, and suddenly had fallen into a mountain stream of ice water. It was like, whoa! I came to. I prayed for protection. I walked back in the room, and she could have been my great-grandmother. And my great-grandmother was born in the 1830s. I had a personal encounter up close and personal with something that was supernatural. That second experience sealed for me the reality that this book, still just as true, was not simply a catalog in a natural history museum of extinct species, but as a field guide to understand how the world works today. Sadly, because I was a novice and did not have much insight in, into these things at the time, I decided the safest thing for me was never to see this young woman again. I didn't, but I learned later that she was ritually, sexually killed in another state. I failed to help her. I failed to help her. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says there in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Spiritual warfare is something that believers engage in. And we engage in it ourselves. And that's the first thing that I want to establish before you today. Before you deal with other people who manifest the presence of evil, You've got to deal with evil that comes into your mind. Because if you let evil come and lodge in your mind, you will be defeated. And you will be like the seven sons of Sceva, which we won't look at this morning, who were, who were uh, Jewish exorcists who went and tried to cast a demon out of a man. And uh, they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches... And the man leapt on them and beat them, and they were wounded, and they ran out of the house with their clothes ripped off. You've got to be spiritually right with the Lord. Let me say for just a moment, how do you get right with the Lord? You get right with the Lord by getting real, getting real with yourself. You've got to face yourself. You've got to look at yourself in the mirror without excuses without patting yourself on the back and be honest about what you really think. I've told you a story this morning about myself that I was very hesitant to ever tell anybody for a long, long time, even my wife. And then one day I realized people have a need to realize that pastors and Sunday school teachers and missionaries and doctors and lawyers and nurses wrestle with evil that is supernatural and powerful. So I tell you that story. First, so you'll deal with things yourself. If you're indulging some sin in your life, I'm not talking about falling into sin. It's one thing to fall into sin. Real Christians fall into sin. But if you're holding on to sin, if you're refusing to deal with it, if you're saying to God, hands off, you're going to get into trouble. And you're going to be very susceptible to great evil. So the first thing you got to do, first of all, you have to be sure you're a Christian. How do you become a Christian? You become a Christian very simply by facing yourself and acknowledging to yourself and to God 
that you have come short of being what you ought to be and that you cannot help yourself, you cannot change yourself, you cannot save yourself, you cannot earn your way to heaven, and you turn from yourself, your self-centered ways, your selfishness, and you cast yourself on God's mercy in Christ. That's called faith. You cast yourself on God's mercy in Christ. You put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know that when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses you from all your sins. And so you're right with God. And the key to healthy Christian living is when sin arises in your life. Deal with it exactly the same way you dealt with it when you got saved, got converted, became a believer. Face your sin, be honest about it, confess it to God, then believe the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And believe that God forgives you when you ask him and believe you're right with God. It's very simple, but it's very, very difficult. Why is it difficult? Because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. It's not just a forgetful mind. There's supernatural forces that want to keep you in bondage. So the first thing when, before you ever deal with somebody who has demonic manifestations is get right with the Lord yourself. If you're not a believer, become a believer. If you're not a believer, get a believer to help you. If you're a believer and there's some silliness in your life, like you're having an affair with somebody at work, or you're, you're cheating somebody financially, or you're, 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 you've got a, a stronghold in your life of something else, face it. Be honest with yourself and God. Turn from it and claim the power of the name and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got a couple of more scriptures, and I'm going to uh, open it for questions. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. if you have a Bible. And um, let's see here. Oh, I'm in the Gospel of Mark. No wonder I can't find it. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, Jesus tells a story. He tells the parable of the haunted house. And uh, I like to call it the parable of the, of the haunted house. Uh, because it's a, it's a story uh, that reveals, let's see here, gracious sakes, I have it in my notes, and I should have had it right here. And um, it's here, he says, uh, let's see, forgive me for a moment. Think of a question while I'm looking for it. Uh, I think it's Matthew 12, I don't know why. Ah, here it is, Matthew 12, verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in water. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. I want to point out a couple of things. There are two different Greek words for other. I don't want to press this distinction too much. I'm always nervous when people press Greek words because really English Bibles are completely accurate. Uh, a Greek word or a Hebrew word just adds a little color to it, so I want to say that. But there are two Greek words, uh, there are two major Greek words for other. One is another of the same kind, and the other is another of a different kind. That word for another of a different kind is heteros. So we get heterogeneous and heterosexual and so on. Now Jesus uses the word heteros there when he talks about this spirit who's been cast out of a man coming back and finding the house all swept and put in order. It says he brings with him seven heteros, seven other spirits of a different kind. Again, I don't want to press that too hard because let me tell you what I, you don't need to know Greek in order to see here. Notice what he says. If anybody has a Bible, what does he say? He brings, in verse 45, seven other spirits more what than itself? More what? More wicked. Do you mean there's some demons that are relatively nice? Well, yeah, there are. And there's some that are relatively wicked, 
Well, yeah, they're all wicked, okay? <laughs> Please understand me. Every demon is an evil spirit. Every demon is wicked. But some are more wicked than others. What does that mean? Well, there are spirits, religious spirits, for example, throw this out, that can make you feel really good in a worship service where you're hearing lies. I'll say, I've prayed in the mosque. I've had two of the imams, Salafi imams, in my home for a meal. When people don't even understand Arabic but memorize and recite the Arabic of the Quran, they can get goosebumps. And I'm simply saying that you can go into a religious meeting and feel really, really good about what's going on. But it has nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing to do with the way of salvation, which is by grace alone, received through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But you feel really good. And one of the reasons for that is demon spirits can make you feel really good. And then you meet some of the spirits that were in Ted Bundy. You know Ted Bundy? Charming man. Probably if he'd chosen to run for office, he might be running for president now. And uh, he was a very charming man. He was very witty. He was very clever. He was very friendly. He was very outgoing. And, uh, and yet, this is what Ted Bundy told your guest speaker yesterday. He didn't tell him this yesterday. He told him this before he was executed. He told your guest speaker yesterday that he basically lived a normal life and then all of a sudden something would come over him and he would spy a person and then he would obsess on that person and he would obsess on her and obsess on her and he would plot out how he was going to kill her and what he was going to do to her. And he didn't get relief from this obsession until he followed through. Now that's what I mean by a spirit that's more wicked than another one. They're spirits that make you feel really good about yourself. Make you feel really good and really religious with stuff that has nothing to do with the Lord Jesus. And then they're spirits that make you want to stalk, dismember, and do terrible things to some poor woman. More wicked spirits. So you see these things. Now I want to wrap this up and, and, and open it up for questions, for brief questions, and want to then defer to later. Whenever Jesus dealt with demon spirits, whenever the apostles dealt with demon spirits, they never simply prayed. They always spoke out loud, took authority, and commanded the spirits to leave, without exception. Now... He said, well, what about demon possession? This is the topic, and you're just now getting to it? Yeah. The word demon possession is an attempt of English translators to translate a Greek verb. The Greek verb is the verbal form of the word demon. A better translation would be demonized. Demonized. So, well, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Well, I want to say that a born-again person uh, cannot be under absolute, final, and total control of a demon spirit, but I know I was a born-again person in the fall of 1977 when I had those terrible thoughts, obsessive thoughts, coming into my mind in my own office. Can a Christian be impacted by demons? Of course. Paul wrestled with them. So demon-possessed, I think it's a misleading word because what the New Testament uses is simply the word demon put in a verbal form as a, as a participle. He was demonized, dealt with this demonized person. This is what I want to say as I wrap up this. There are degrees of demonic influence that are very light, that are easily resisted, but if you don't resist, 
become stronger and stronger and stronger until finally the demonic influence controls your life and ruins your life. Going to school all those years, I mean, I went a long time and I had to work. So I held all kinds of odd, job, odd jobs from selling insurance to, uh, to selling soft ice cream uh, in, in the heart of the inner city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to working briefly for a funeral home. One day, I was riding to the crematorium with a dead person in the back, and the, and the, and the main, uh, uh, what do they call them, mortician, not undertakers, the main mortician riding, driving the, the, van, the van. And we have this, this lady in the back, and we're delivering her to the crematorium there in Philadelphia. There were more than one. And that we drive around back, and as we pull up underneath the crematorium where the garage was, very large open place, there were probably 30 coffins there. And as we're driving up, the undertaker cursed and said, blankety blank, he's at it again. And I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, look at that. And we got out of the hearse. And these caskets were open and the ladies had their dresses up and the men had their pants undone and then the undertaker said blankety blank necrophiliac I later met the guy why didn't he get fired work cheap work cheap who wants a lawsuit and I pondered that because one of the courses I took as an undergrad student in the 60s was abnormal psychology. This is really gross. And I began to ponder, where did this guy come from? Was he born that way? And the answer is no. He wasn't born as a necrophiliac. He was born with original sin, which Barack Obama and Mitt Romney and George Washington and uh, President Aguilard and myself and yourself and your mom and dad and your pastor all were born with a sinful nature that began to be conditioned and influenced so that he began to have certain experiences that made him turn away from those things and other experiences that made him embrace those things. So a little here and a little there, I won't go into a, an elaborate speculation from abnormal psychology, but a little here and a little there, this man, in my opinion, came not only naturally through worldly things with his carnal soul responding to those stimuli, but also supernaturally, demonically, this man came from having a mild demonic influence to coming under complete control of demon spirits. And yet when you saw him, like a Ted Bundy, having him over for supper, to play checkers, you wouldn't necessarily have known anything, although he's kind of disheveled and nasty looking. He was a necrophiliac. A necrophiliac. There is a transition in many people from being a person just like the person next to you here today. Take a look at the left and the right. Okay? who fails to deal with temptation and sin and gives himself or herself over to sin. And the more that that person gives himself or herself over to sin, the stronger the influence of evil and the supernatural until there's complete bondage. Now, sometimes in the New Testament, people are born with powerful supernatural forces against them. And we see that in the Gospels. And there are reasons for that that have to do with some things I don't want to get into today, but I'd be happy to talk about generational things. But by and large, if you ever encounter someone in a hospital who you believe is demon-possessed, what you're dealing with is a person who once was born like you were born, who were once nursed at his mother's breast, 
or was bottle-fed, probably more likely bottle-fed. And um, once grew up like other kids, played in school, began to go through puberty, and began to do sexual experimentation. And in the course of things, experiencing being rejected here and accepted here, feeling powerful here, being powerless there, he begins to come more and more under supernatural influences until he gets a job at the cheaper of the two big crematoriums, cre crematoria in Philadelphia. I compared the one to kind of the steakhouse and the other kind of to McDonald's. But anyhow, he worked at the McDonald's one, and, uh, but he was once a mama's boy, a mama's girl, a daddy's boy, a daddy's girl, just like people sitting here today. Anybody got a question before uh, we uh, uh, turn it back to Dr. Sharp? Okay, the question is cast of the eyes. I don't know how to describe it. I don't know if I could photograph it or not. You know, it's an interesting thing. Um, the eye is the window of the soul. Uh, my aunt, who died in 1999, was born in 1896, and she had a man who worked for her for about... 60 years of her life. They were very close after her husband died. And um, this man was an African-American, and they loved each other very much. And one day I went to visit my aunt, and I, I said, I, I noticed, I, I said, Inez, I always called her by her first name. This was her 90th birthday. I said, I, I noticed James' eyes, and I wondered if, does he, does he have cataracts? And this is what she said. I don't, I don't want to use, she used the polite old southern word for an African-American rather than the uh, one that, uh, uh, that's really bad. I don't like to use the word, but she said, I don't know, Robert, she said. I was always taught never to look uh, an African-American in the eyes. I thought, are you kidding me? I didn't say that to her. She was an elderly woman. He had worked for her for over 60 years. He'd worked for her husband since he was a little boy. And she had never looked him in the eyes. She never knew him. He'd call her when he'd go visit relatives in New York. She wanted to do good things for him. They really loved each other. But she never looked him in the eyes. The eyes, the window of the soul. She never saw his soul. When you look in someone's eyes... And suddenly those eyes change, and you see another soul. You know that you know that you know you're looking at somebody else. And that's what I'm saying. It wasn't like you could photograph it and say, Aha! Now this person has demon eyes. It's just that when you really look people in the eye, when you're opening your soul to their soul, when you're trying to understand who they are, and you see something happen, you know that you're looking at another soul, at another spirit besides the spirit you were talking to five minutes before. That's what I mean. L let me respond. I think that there's great wisdom in what she said to you, but I'd like to propose another alternative. And that's for me. As a person who listens to people with all kinds of problems, um, I mean, some pretty bizarre stuff, even without touching people, uh, I, I can tell you I, I feel drained and all that. Uh, I had someone, uh, they brought somebody to me from Central Hospital 20 years ago, and when I listened to that man's story, I felt like I needed to stay, take a fire hose and stick it in one ear and let it wash my brain. It was unbelievable. But the key is understanding that we're dealing with something powerful and supernatural. So I think what we have to do is to make sure that we're trusting that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so what I would say is that we can touch, but let's be prayed up. 
And let's be aware that there are contaminating influences. And even without touching, those influences are there to suck you out. They're like psychic vampires. I mean, you know, just suck the life out of you. And let me say, because most of you here, I assume, uh, are caregivers, uh, it's very draining work because of that very thing. Touch can exacerbate it, but touch can also be a healing thing. Jesus touched. But what Jesus did was to be full of the Holy Spirit when he touched so that he's the one doing the, uh, the transmitting of power, as it were, as over against someone else, uh, you know, on us. So that's sort of my thought. I touch people all the time. I try to be careful. I, I'm very careful when I hug women that I don't hug them like this if I can possibly avoid it. Um, I'm still a guy. And so I'm, I'm a big sideways shoulder hugger, and I'm a patter-on-the-shoulder kind of person. And with little kids, I pat them on the head and that kind of thing. But I believe in touch, but I think you got to be prayed up. And that. Any anybody else before we turn it over to Doctor Sharp for our? Yes, ma'am. I can't. I can't hear. Sorry. Well. <laughs> I'll say why. In my case, I just didn't believe it was true. I believed the Bible was true. If you had said to me, when I became installed as the pastor of Grace, when I was admitted uh, to be uh, installed there in 75, September 11th, by the way, um, 37 years ago, I said I believe the Bible is true. I believe it's God's infallible and errant word. But I didn't believe that those things happen today. So therefore, I think that people don't teach it. And, and I think that, secondly, I think that people don't want to be viewed as nuts. And I kind of gave up worrying about that some years ago. I realized people think I'm crazy. I even had for a while the nickname Crazy Bob. And um, i just rather be thought of as crazy and help people. So I think that you're viewed as kooky. I think that a lot of times there's ignorance. And then I'll just say this, uh, who likes to clean uh, out a stable? If you don't like cleaning out a stable, you sure don't like cleaning out a pig pen. And when you begin to deal with, with human evil and you realize there's a supernatural dimension, it can get nasty. I mean, it's like my experience uh, in the fall of 97, uh, excuse me, the fall of 77 with a young woman and hearing the voice in my head. I mean, I was, I was ashamed to tell my wife about that. And, uh, I mean, it really was. I thought, what does that say about me? You know what it says about me? It says nothing about me. It says something about the evil one. I wasn't sitting there in the natural room, and there was a natural occasion, like I say, when she came in. But I'm not, I wasn't entertaining those thoughts. It says nothing about me. It says something about evil. But in our own minds, we get that confused. We think, oh, my, I must be, I must be a real lecher. You know, uh, I'm, I'm American male, but I'm not a lecher. But I could become a lecher if I give in to those things and then give in to them and then don't repent and give in some more. I could end up working for some crematorium in Philadelphia. And I really mean that. I really mean that. And I mean that about you too. The potential for radical evil is in all of us if we yield to evil and never repent. Those are some thoughts. Question. Let me respond to that this way. I believe that the Bible doesn't delineate between the natural and supernatural the way we do in, Western, in the Western philosophical uh, uh, tradition, particularly in post-Kantian uh, Western philosophy. Kant believed in a, in a phenomenal realm. That's the world like this, you know. Yeah, that hurts. Uh, and the noumenal realm. And in the, in the Western philosophical uh, tradition, coming out of the Enlightenment, there's a, there's a tremendous tendency to separate these things. I don't think that the Bible separates them. It doesn't mean that, it, I'm not saying that it, doesn't, that it doesn't take note of the fact that things may have different causes. But things are, as we experience things, there's not a hard and fast delineation. So things can be organic. And things can be demonic, and things can be due to psychological conditioning, and all these things. And, 
And how we think affects our brain chemistry. If you're down in the dumps and people uh, test you and you, you say, man, this person has is, is, is serious uh, problems, and then, I think he's dead now, so I guess you really would have a physiological reaction if he rang your doorbell. Ed McMahon, who used to do the publisher's clearinghouse thing, I think. But somebody rang your doorbell and you realized with the, with the trucks out there and satellite upfeeds that, that you've won the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes and you're now worth $20 million. I don't care what's going on here. Uh, chemically, they're going to be a chemical reaction. And, and so I'm saying is that rather than saying this is natural, this is organic, that the way that Scripture looks at reality is that things from our perspective it's very difficult to delineate and say, well, this is this, this is that. Let me illustrate that again, sort of indirectly on your thing. Males are attracted to females, and they're attracted particularly with the, with the optic nerve as against the olfactory nerve like dogs. And there are certain signals to the brain of a male, if you're a dog, that the female is an estrus, and you pick that up with the olfactory nerve. But for a male human, it isn't by scent, but it's by appearance. So that if a woman comes in like that woman, um, dressed in a way that's provocative, and I say provocative, basically dressed in a way that says, here I am, you know, I'm available, the male reaction is natural to respond to that. So there's a natural physical response that's there in every male. Then there's the conditioning of the world, and, and it's there, and it's conditioning in me, and it's conditioning in her. And then there was the supernatural. If I can use another illustration, if you remember the days of record players, which probably most people, you know, there's what I grew up with. I grew up with uh, 78 RPM record players. And I learned this by playing with them, my brother's record player when I was a kid, much to his chagrin. Without the electricity, I could put a record on that record player, and I could put the, the arm down with a needle in it, and with my finger I could turn it, even if the electricity's off, and I could hear. I could hear what's there, and if I turned to the right speed, I could hear it well. But then with electricity, that signal is sent and amplified into speakers, and you could hear it so loudly you can't ignore it, kind of like somebody with giant subwoofers driving by your home at 3 a.m., and really blasting you out. So what I'm saying is that the demonic, the supernatural, takes the natural and just gives it a great amplification and a boost. So again, I'm not sure that we need to say, well, this is clearly not organic or this is clearly organic. I think that we treat things in a multidisciplinary way and we never rule out the spiritual and we never rule out prayer and we never rule out trying to talk to somebody and love somebody and pray for somebody even as we treat the organic. I don't know, does that come? Yes, ma'am. You mentioned about generational. Yes, ma'am. Well, as I read the Bible, I see that the Bible doesn't treat humans in the way that we think of humans in, in the Western, again, in the Western uh, philosophical uh, tradition in a very highly individualistic way. When you go to the polls on November the 6th and vote, you're laying your hand on the person you vote for and saying in effect to God, I'm willing to be responsible for this person's actions. Wow. So it makes voting a very serious thing. People's parents affect their, uh, the person. For example, if a person's a drunk, i just use the bad word. If a person's a drunk, if a person uh, is a compulsive gambler and basically destroys the ability to make a, earn a living, the children don't have the benefits of other children whose parents uh, do not have a drinking problem, do not have a gambling problem, and are, are home with them in the evenings and on weekends and like my daddy telling me, boy, you better get up and study, you know, and mama uh, teaching me math tables with a ruler uh, by telling me, you know, what's, as I wandered with my mind, 
what's seven times seven? And I didn't say she swatted me on the uh, arm with a ruler. She was a first grade teacher. It worked very well. And I still, when I, I'm having a math problem, I have to slap myself sometimes. My point is that parenting affects children naturally. And I'm saying that as I look at Scripture, parenting affects children supernaturally too. And grandparenting affects children supernaturally and great-grandparenting, like in the Ten Commandments, uh, where God says, you know, visiting the iniquity. I believe the blood of Jesus cancels those things when we self-consciously appropriate what Jesus did for us. But without that, there's this pattern of generations. Well, we've gone over. I can. Thank you.